I want to take kind of a, a, like a roll, like rolling into the sermon this morning and just talk briefly about where we are and where we're going. Uh, we don't do that a lot. And, uh, and so I, I kind of just think it's a fun time to just um, talk about a few of those things and, and, and just get excited about the fall. Because if you knew all of that's coming, that's kind of the idea. I want, I want you to know some of what's coming. But if you knew all of what's coming this fall and that we've been working on all summer, um, it's really exciting. It's an exciting season kind of in the church. And one of the things that Tish brought up, we, we've never really had someone on staff that's had volunteerism by their name. And volunteerism is really trying to say, how do we focus on and, and really develop the people in the church so that the work is, doing, uh, is being done by the congregation and not just by the staff. It's a, it's a hard thing, and, and sometimes we do a good job. Oftentimes we don't. It's a hard thing to engage congregations sometimes and, and raise people up and give away ownership and empower people and equip people rather than just doing something yourself as staff or going to the people that you've always gone to to get something done. For us, we have so many great uh, interns that often we can just default to tapping the interns for whatever it is that needs to get done. The downside of that is that we haven't always done a good job of giving away ownership, empowering the congregation so that that you and we can collectively own this church. Does that make sense? Um, Sometimes because all the interns um, tend to be in their 20s, I don't think we've ever had like a 40-year-old intern. I don't think, I'll have to go back and check, but since, um, since the interns tend to be younger and, and all, several people on staff tend to be younger, uh, we've inadvertently given the impression sometimes that we, we are not excited about older people in the congregation. I mean, I've actually had some conversations with people about that, and it breaks my heart, because if there's any group of people or demographic of people in this church that have had a long time to, to, to grow in wisdom, the spiritual stuff um, that they need to be able to pass on to those of us that haven't lived uh, life, had the opportunities, experienced different things. People that actually have time uh, and gifts to give that way oftentimes are the most spiritually mature to serve with consistency and regularity. Um, for, for us to miss that or for people to think that we don't value that like literally breaks my heart. And so one of the things we're really trying to do this fall, bringing Tishon's a big part of it, one of the things we're trying to do this fall is just say our whole staff is, needs to be aimed and focused on reaching out and equipping the people in the church to own and be able to take part in the ministry. That's actually what paid staff at churches, if you go all the way back to the idea of professional clergy, um, exist for. So Ephesians 4 would say that there are a whole lot of different gifts that are given to people. Um, gifts of mercy and compassion, uh, gifts of even administration and things like that. But the gift uh, or the role of being pastors is, is, exists to equip others to do the work of ministry. The role of a pastor is to be about training and discipling and coaching, empowering, raising others up um, so that collectively we are the body of Christ, so that, so that the whole body has a function and a role. And we, we've said often that everybody should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. If you think of any part of your body, 
it's interconnected and interdependent with all the other parts of the body, right? My arm gives and takes blood and everything else, but it's also designed the way it is for a function outside the body, a role um, outside of just serving the biological needs of my body. And so um, as you sit there and as we join local churches, we exist to be interconnected and interdependent with each other, to have a role in the church, but then also uh, a mission in the world, a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. So along those lines, because it, we're not coming at it and just saying this is uh, what we believe or what we feel, we've been structuring everything this summer so that starting this fall, we would be de uh, designed that way. So from now on, our staff meetings are going to be open to anyone in the church. They're going to be on Wednesdays from 1210 to 1250. Uh, anyone can come during their lunch hour. We're actually trying to create an open Skype version so that if you're a school teacher, you can listen in. And they're basically going to be times where we're bringing professionals from all around town, uh, many from within the church that are teachers or psychologists or counselors or leaders. And they're going to come and give a 20 to 25 minute practical uh, lesson for people in terms of helping us with skills development, um, life coaching, and, and giving us the tools to be more effective at whatever it is we do at home, in work, or in the church. So in terms of leadership training, it's, it's very practical thing, not a message, not a sermon, but very practical lessons to help people grow as we all try to become um, better stewards of the gifts that God's given us. So we have teachers talking about what the principles of, of education are. We have uh, a life, a spiritual coach that's going to talk about what it looks like to help um, to pray for other people. Like what are the basics and foundations of being in a conversation with somebody and helping them discern what God is doing in their life, not just imposing our thoughts onto them. We have um, leaders coming and talking about time management and what that looks like, what it means to delegate and to hold people accountable and responsible, but just from a very practical level. So 1250, uh, 1210 to 12.50 on Wednesdays, we're going to have lunch catered for you. Um, you'll hear more about it as it gets closer. This starts on September 18th uh, is the first Wednesday, and it'll be every week. But you can email each week, ask for a lunch. Uh, we'll have it waiting for you. And so we're going to talk about what's going on at Antioch that week, so you'll get a chance to hear this is what's going on. And we're going to have those kind of short 20-minute practical lessons. And then we're going to talk about what prayer requests we're aware of in the church and even ask you what prayer requests we might need to know about collectively so that we can be praying for the people in our body. Uh, there's going to be child care or at least kids playing, and you can throw your kid into the mix. But the, the idea would be that we'd have anywhere from 40 to 70 people. Uh, we're going to video the little talks and put those online so that if you want to go back and see some of those lessons. But the whole idea here is that it's not staff, and then, and then a really thick wall, and then church, meaning those that, um, that show up on Sunday, the congregation or the audience, but that we're really trying to open that all up and pull people in and say, we are the church. Like, we collectively own this thing called Antioch. We get to take pride in this together. This gets to mean something because we all have stake in it. Does that make sense? Our own self-interest is tied to it, not just from a consumer or a spectator or entertainment uh, level, but because I'm actually serving in my creative energy uh, and everything else is going into whatever it might be that you're involved in. So if you're a volunteer or if you're just somebody that wants to get more involved or if you feel like you're a part of the core of Antioch, 
those Wednesday um, staff meetings are now open sourced, if you will. And what we're really hoping is that we're not going to just keep coming and saying, um, hey, we need more volunteers for whatever it might be, but that literally we're working so hard as staff to make your volunteer experience meaningful and satisfying um, that we're growing a culture of volunteerism and that we don't need to ask for more volunteers because everybody's um, is, is getting engaged and pulling other people into engagement. Does that make sense? Like one of the, I gave a, I, mean, I remember giving a message um, when Antioch began. I called it Mother Kirk, which was, um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Pilgrim's Regress. It was an allegory, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, but it was about his conversion in allegory form. And in that book, there was this figure called Mother Kirk. And Kirk is the Scottish word for church. It's Kirk, um, still is. Uh, and, and so Mother Kirk was the local church. It was the church. And it had this role in kind of um, C.S. Lewis's allegorical kind of autobiographical testimony. And so I did this sermon series called Mother Kirk, and it was basically on the local church, trying to say, what is it? How do we really understand this? And as part of that series, I came to a talk um, which was, what are, the, what are the things that give you credence to leave a church? Like, what are the things that literally would, in Scripture, be, be the things that would allow you to say, you know what, we need to leave and go find a different church? Um, because there are biblical reasons to leave a church and go find another church. And I think often our, our reason is very simplistic, and it's like, I'm bored just bored, right? I don't, get, I don't get excited. I don't get the thrill anymore of going there. Let me, let me see if I can go somewhere else and it'll be fresh. And so like the, the new thing, just like anything else in, in our culture, it's like after a while, new just seems like it'll add some pizzazz or whatnot, right? So that's kind of how people go to new churches or style. It's like, I don't like the style of this or that. And so I might go try something else. Um, a, a a bad stretch or a tough season, we kind of look at that and we go, oh, this, this isn't fun anymore or it's, it's getting tough. Let me go see if I can find somewhere else. And when we began Antioch, the first 40 or 50 people that came to Antioch, I looked them in the eye and said, unless God tells you specifically, unless you hear from God to go to Antioch, don't come. Don't want you here. And that was, um, began to be a lot easier for me to, to say to people it began with um, Fred Kent. Remember, uh, remember, I think they're still at family camp. Fred and, uh, Fred and Melanie Kent, uh, I felt like God had said to me, um, unless they're in, you can't plant a church, but here's the deal. You don't get to twist their arm to get them in. You have to just put it in front of them, and then, and then you have to let them hear from me, and you got to be hands off. And uh, and it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. I felt like that's what God said to me. I'm not saying, you know, I mean, I don't say that often from up front here because that, that can be the whole God told me stuff can be a form of spiritual abuse. But that was something I felt like God said to me. And so Tam and I went to Fred and, and Melanie Kent and we said, here's the deal. Here's what we're doing. We'd love to call you, you guys to be a part of that. Um, and, uh, but you got to hear from God. And so they took two weeks to pray. Was, I felt like that was a little excessive. Um, <laughs> a lot. I was expecting like the next day something. 
but I couldn't speak into it. And I remember just in my prayer life going, God, why would you put my life in some weird way dependent upon somebody else hearing from you? Like that makes me feel really insecure, God, that I don't like this at all. That's not a good way of doing it. It'd be much easier if I just went after Fred every day until he just caved, right? And so I just kind of was, I hated that experience. And so they finally came back and they said, uh, hey, not only do we feel like God is calling us to do this, but we look back all the way to moving from Tigard to Bend, Oregon, and a whole lot of things that happened. And as we're looking at all that, we feel like not only is God calling us to do this now, but that he led us all the way here for the purpose of doing this. And it, in that moment, taught me something that we are, we're mutually dependent upon each other. Does that make sense? I could have never gotten that out of Fred and Melanie if I had just leaned into them, pressed into them. Them hearing from God was so much deeper and richer and created community uh, in church in such a better and healthier way than if it had just been about vision and about let's go change the world, right? And so um, I really walked away from that and, and kind of was chastised. And out of that, everyone we talked to from that moment forward, we kind of said the same thing. Listen, you got to hear from God or don't come. Um, because here's the thing, there's going to be a time in the life of Antioch when things get tough. And when it, when it gets tough, and you go, man, it's tough, this is a tough stretch, the answer, can, and you, you ask yourself, well, why am I here anyways? Like, what, what, why did I come to this church? The answer can't be, oh, that's right, Ken twisted my arm. The answer has to be, well, that's right, um, God called me, God called our family to be here. And that's why we're here. And we're going to continue to be here. And in tough times, where we're supposed to be with our family, we do what family members do. We figure out how to move forward. But tough times in most churches for most Christians can be just one of those easy times to disengage. The going's kind of finally got tough or, or slow. Let me disengage and go find something different or new or just sample. So there's a lot of reasons that people find um, to, to try new churches but there are some legitimate reasons. Um, heresy. If, if you honestly believe and you're convicted by conscience that what's being taught is not biblical or not God-honoring, that's a reason to leave a church. Um, I can't remember, like I had five, and these, I didn't just make them up. They're going all the way back to the Reformation or whatever. They're in my notes from five years ago. But the last one was this. That's where I'm going with it all, right? The last reason um, to leave a church, legitimate reason, is if you can't, if you're trying or have tried, and you can't find a way to utilize your gifts in that community. It's a legitimate reason to leave a church. And if there's ever a reason that I feel like myself or the staff at Antioch sh um, should be working to remove for why people would leave Antioch or might, you know, at some point leave Antioch, it would be that one. Um, it's, it's something that has to do with our effort. Teaching is really about the elders and our doctrine, and it's pretty fixed. Um, it's orthodox. But the one that really on a day-to-day -day or work week level that we can speak into the most as staff is creating the opportunities for people to be involved in a meaningful way such that you get the joy of using the gifts God gave you 
for the edification of the church. Does that make sense? We use our gifts for a lot of things, to get ahead in life, to make money, to be successful at business, to be funny with friends, to um, create a social network. To, I mean, we use our gifts for a lot of things, but it says in 1 Corinthians and again in Ephesians that our gifts are given to us for the edification of the body, meaning that everyone here has something that they can contribute to the collective whole. And that when all of that is coming together, that's when it begins to be explosive, the synergistic kind of thing where, uh, like in the early book of Acts, everybody's bringing something to throw on the fire. Everybody's contributing, everyone wants in, and as all that's happening, it's contagious, and the momentum builds, and the fire grows, and then people are looking at that and saying, wow, all you guys are serving something other than just your own self-interest. You're doing it together. What's going on? And that's when the church really becomes dynamic and exciting. And it's not supposed to be when it's new or when it has good branding or when you know, the music reaches a certain decibel level. What's supposed to make the church attractive is when the church is being the church with everybody caring more about the collective than themselves. Does that make sense? And that's not depending on, on kind of the things that we set up American church around. You know, when we treat church like a theater, you know what we end up with? Theater goers, right? And uh, the church has always had stages, even the book of Acts. I mean, the temple steps when the apostles would go and get up and teach, um, there's nothing wrong with an auditorium. There's nothing wrong with a stage. But if that's as far as it goes, then all we're going to cultivate is theater goers. And if we really begin to try and lean into this, the goal and the vision and the idea here is that we would cultivate a body and a community that would make people realize there's something beautiful about the local church. I'm, I'm, I'm a late-life Christian, and, and I steered from being an engineer into going to be a pastor because as I got passionate about my faith and was learning, reading the Bible and learning about Christianity, it was unmistakable to me that the church was God's plan A and that there is no plan B. And I, I think what frustrates me the most about my generation is whenever we find something wrong about a local church, you know what they say, right? If you find the perfect church don't go because by being there you'll mess it up because you're imperfect right uh, church is, is made up of imperfect people and when you aggregate that it's going to be an imp imperfect institution but we've somehow missed the fact that it's it's an institution we're covenanted to and so when you find something imperfect in an institution you're covenanted to like in marriage you don't go outside the covenant you don't just harp on it, you grace it. You love into it. You work hard and labor to redeem it so that it can be the best version of itself that it, that it can possibly be. Does that make sense? And I, I, I long for my generation and for the generation after me to come along and say, we're going to be part of the, the solution, not part of the problem, with regard to local church in America. 
And we have to hear that message because everybody's popping and saying, the church isn't getting it done here. Let me go start a nonprofit. 90% of the nonprofits in the world today were created in the last 10 years. We are the nonprofit seeking, making generation. And I've created a few myself, right? So I'm not totally down on that. But our impulse is to go create, go create, go start over. Our impulse is not to redeem the way I think it's supposed to be. And we, we act as if the nonprofit is somehow going to replace or be better than the church, as if the plan B is going to be better than plan A. Well, who thought of plan B? I, I did. What happens after I die and um, the visionary is not a part of the nonprofit anymore? You know, or culture changes and there's not a lot of discretionary money to give to nonprofits or, or whatever it might be. What happens then? It just it goes away. Will Campus Crusade or, or Young Life, will they be here in a thousand years? Will they be here in 500 years? Are they designed by God to be eternal institutions that carry forward his plan? They're not. And so the more we try and create plan B, we're creating something that's, that's human, and it's not necessarily bad, but if it begins to replace the plan A, what God created, that's going to exist all the way into heaven and be this institution that's eternal, if we begin to not redeem the church, but always try and replace it by creating something new, we're not using our gifts in the appropriate way or, or we're neglecting unappropriate use of our gift. I don't want to overstate it. I think there's a role for nonprofits. But if we get so caught up on that frenzy that we're not doing anything to redeem the local church, then we're neglecting the gift of, of what God gave us for the benefit of the church. We're, we're, we're neglecting the giving of that to the appropriate end. Does that make sense? Do we talk about that normally? And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm realizing something that I, realize, I always realize every year when I pay attention enough is that most every problem at Antioch is, I, is mine. When I really pay attention, um, I, I can see all the ways in which I screw it up, right? Um, I can see my fingerprints on it. I can, all the cool things that happen at Antioch seem to be things that, that come from left field, either opportunities that nobody saw coming or a group of people like this group of women that's going to Africa, uh, or a, a men's small group, or a group of artists, people that come together, and God begins to speak and move with them, and then they use their gifts, and something beautiful begins to grow, and you look at it and you say, that's a movement of, of the people of God, or that's a movement of the Spirit, and then it begins to bless everybody else, and you look at that and you go, that wasn't in the, that wasn't in the budget wasn't in our 2013 plan. It wasn't in our whatever. Um, but it's what's making this church dynamic. And it's what's showing people that God is alive in this church. And so we want to be able to cultivate those things. But it's a conversation we have to be able to have together. Um, and we have to start with a primacy and a value on the bride of Christ. And understand that it's not going to be perfect but that's the starting point. It can get so much better if we're willing to lean into it and grace it. So if you'll turn with me to John 17, I want to talk a little bit about unity. 
All of that up until now was Tish's job description. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, it's actually my passion. I've been all summer long. To, um, Tam and I, uh, we're just in a, in, a, in a fun phase of life right now where we're just, we, we, you cut us and we bleed for this church. Um, it's, it's fun to be in love with your church. It's fun to be in love with the town in which you live. Um, it's fun to feel like there's a lot that you can rejoice and give thanks for. Um, and so that's really my passion. I'm excited to see the things that are coming this fall that hopefully structurally will make a lot of this easier for us as a body. But John 17, I've been reflecting on this recently as well. It's Jesus' last prayer. It's, it's Jesus in the garden. It's Jesus, remember, um, asking his disciples to pray for him and, and going off in, in such grief and such heaviness. And so you see, in some sense, some of the most passionate and earnest prayer that you'll ever see in Scripture. I mean, just think about that. It's some of the most gut-wrenching, passionate, heartfelt prayer from someone who is united with the mind and the purpose of God more than anyone else. All of this being channeled into specific prayer. And I think there's a lot that can, when we understand that context, a lot that can speak to us. And when we get to, um, the whole prayer speaks to unity, but I want to get to verse 20, because I find something really fascinating. Jesus is kind of all throughout this prayer talking about oneness and unity. And in that, I think we, we see something that's, so on his heart um, that in all of this anguish, he wouldn't only be talking about God taking this cup from him, but that he would be talking about what's going to happen to the people that he loves. And that somehow, I mean, if, if, if I knew I was going and you were saying, think of your four daughters, Ken, I would care about their happiness. I would care about uh, their fulfillment in life. But I, I would have a picture of them coming together at the holidays and if you showed me a picture of them never coming together again, going 10 or 20 years of fighting that's unresolved, you know what that would do to me? Um, I mean, that's, that would be just, in some sense, the most gut-wrenching of thoughts to a father if, if, if you were going to leave and that was the idea of what could come after you. And so Jesus is talking about his disciples in this unity, and he's talking about that they would stay together. But in verse 20, he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I remember hearing pastors when I first became a Christian saying, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he saw you, Ken. And I remember thinking, no, I don't know. I really, I don't know that I believe that. I don't, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that, did he see me as a two-year-old or as a 20-year-old? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, if, if you really push into that and say, are, are we speaking 
really here or are we just talking Christian gobbledygook, right? I mean, what, which version of me did Jesus see? You know, the two-year-old or the 20? And did he see me physically or did he see the idea of me that God was going to create me? Or, or did Jesus just go through the most excruciating of deaths and know that he was dying for all who would come, which includes me. And frankly, I think it's the latter. It's, it's a little less, um, I don't know, whatever. But I think that when we say, what did Jesus see on the cross? I think Jesus saw all who would come. The people that God loves the world that he wants to redeem and that he knew this suffering he was experiencing was going to go for that. And who I think he saw physically was a 50-year-old woman in front of him who was suffering as deeply as he was because it was his mom. And he saw her and he said, Mom, that's John. I trust John. I love John. John loves me. That's your son. Like, when you're scared at night, that's who you're going to call out for. When, when you run out of money, you don't know how to eat, that's who's going to take care of you. John, you got to get my mom. And then, who else did he see physically? He's like between two guys hung in the middle on crosses. And you got this really humble criminal and this humble, broken criminal is looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, I feel really alone. I feel really alone, and I know I deserve to be here, and I know you don't deserve to be here. Jesus, would you remember me? And Jesus is looking at that, and he's going, man, even in Jesus' anguish, and that Jesus sees faith, and he responds to that and says, I tell you the truth, you're going to be with me in paradise. And like, I feel like that's what Jesus saw physically. Me, I think Jesus saw metaphorically or symbolically or um, as, as all creation moving forward that would come. That's what I believe. And this verse brings me comfort. Because that, even if Jesus didn't see five foot eight Ken with a weird boot on his foot, right? Uh, even if Jesus didn't see that, it still mattered to him. Verse 20, my prayer is not just for my disciples alone, God. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The church, my bride, the continuation from generation to generation of the people that are gonna follow me and cry aloud like this criminal on my name that are gonna look to me. I care about those people. I'm one of those. If you're here today and you believe in Jesus, you're one of those. This verse is Jesus praying for us. That means something to me. Does that make sense? So what does Jesus pray? That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you. And may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he prays for unity. He prays that he would be with us, God would be, and it's not gonna be like just a club disconnected or just unity with God, but that it's, it's unity across 
It's right relationship with God, right relationship with others, and that all of that wraps together in a, in a whole, an organic, united whole, that the kids would be getting together at Christmas time and loving on each other. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus prayed for. So Jesus wants us to be united. Let me pop down just a little bit. Um, I and them and you and me, and they may be, and may they, this is verse 23, and may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And then he says, um, I want those that you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus cares that I'm united to you. Jesus cares that I get to go be with him in paradise. Jesus cares. And then it says, righteous father, this is how it ends. Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. And I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus cares that I'm one with you. Jesus cares that I get to go be with him. And Jesus cares that he's going to be able to continue to pour love into me and continue in some sense through his Holy Spirit to be with me that I might love as he loved. And that he says that somehow in this, the world will see and know that Jesus was who he claimed to be. That's pretty big, heady stuff, right? So Jesus wants his church to be united. Here's my experience in 20 years, almost 20 years of Christianity. We immediately start with trying to figure out who that doesn't apply to. Well, I don't know that the Episcopalians fall into that category. Well, that church down the street, I don't like that pastor. I don't really know that, um, that his doctrine is what I believe. He's Armenian or Calvinist. So obviously, I, he's on the outside and these people they don't do communion right and these people they baptize little babies instead of like the older people and we I find that our mind immediately wants to say I'm at the middle and I got to figure out who's going to be on my team because obviously Jesus means for me to be at the center of this whole unity thing right obviously so who's with me? Well, not them, not them, not them, not, you know, and we kind of begin to try to categorize, right? I find that that's where our minds go, and then we get completely sidetracked, and we're not even thinking about unity anymore. We're thinking about ourselves and who's like us, which is a whole lot different than Jesus' followers being united. I think if we really understand unity, it's Jesus' prayer, not ours. And it's Jesus' love in us, not our own goodness or our own great theology that we think we've worked out. Um, it's he who's at the center, Christ-centered. That's our first value at Antioch. And the first question is, what about me means I get to be in the club? Do I really believe? Am I really trusting? Am I really following? Am I really leaning on? And then does Jesus really care that they practice communion or baptism that way? I mean, at the end of the day, is, that's a bigger deal to me maybe than it is to Jesus. And 
I'm not even supposed to be judging. He's the one that gets to decide. Like, so maybe even if I disagree with that group over there, I still got to hold that loosely that just maybe um, it's not as big of a deal to Jesus than it is to me because he really cares about this unity thing. And I, I got to be very careful that I don't work against accidentally by caring about my issues with that group that somehow I end up working against the unity that Jesus is trying to bring. Does that make sense? So what really causes this unity or how do we focus on this unity? How do we bring this about? What's going to drive it? I skipped a verse and I want to read it now. Um, Verse 22. So this is John 17, verse 22. Jesus has just said, I pray that they might be one. Those that are going to believe in me through the message of my disciples, us, I pray that they're going to be one. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Have you ever thought about that? If you're a Christian, Jesus gave you glory that's somehow sufficient for grounding or gluing together or drawing together you with others in unity, in oneness, that somehow wouldn't be able to be done if Jesus hadn't given you glory. Does that make sense? When we talk about people and being one, if we keep Jesus out of the equation, here's what ends up happening, okay? I was in a fraternity, so I'm an expert in this. Um, I could testify in court, uh, an expert in disagreements. Here's what happens. When you disagree with somebody, you don't go to them and say, I have a problem and and allow them the chance to say they're sorry. Um, We don't do that. Or we don't go to them and say, hey, I think I heard you say this. It really bothered me. Is that what you meant? We don't go get their side of the story. We don't do that. When Jesus isn't in the equation, we, we don't tend to do that. Rather, we hold on to the idea that we are right and that it's very black and white. They're wrong and we're right, which justifies us in, in being pulled together and coming up in, in, uh, in, ha- in, in being able to do whatever we want to do in our minds or in our conversations with other people against them because we're above them. We have the right to treat them in the way they deserve to be treated according to how we feel or think. And so I can talk bad about them I can continue to punish them for it. I can go on despising or being bitter against them. And I can do all of it from this position of power. Do you understand that? When someone wrongs us, we feel powerful. We are right. And with all of the power that comes from rightness and black and whiteness, we, that, we have that. If I go to them and give them a chance to say they're sorry, if they say they're sorry, they just went all the power. I got nothing. I got nothing left. If I go tell them how I read them and they go, no, you heard me wrong, and let me tell you what I really meant, I, I might actually feel dumb that I misunderstood and that I slandered them to 10 people before I even went and talked to them. Or I might realize that things in this world aren't so black and white. They're a lot more nuanced. 
and that yes, I have a perspective, but there's a lot of other perspectives and different words or different contexts mean different things. And then all of a sudden it gets very confusing. They're not really as bad as I thought they were. They're just frustrating, but I, I don't have any power over frustrating, right? They got to be bad for me to have my power. Does that make sense? And when I have that power, you know what we do with that power? We feed on it. We feed on it. It gets us through the day. Makes us feel big. Makes us feel important. Makes us feel right. It feeds us. We um, are nurtured in some sense by that feeling of righteous indignation or superiority or, or aboveness. And that gives us worth. That grounds us. That makes us feel important. It makes us feel secure because I can just be against anything around me. I don't have to necessarily work at the messy reality of, of, of not being right. So if I'm right and against everything or against those people or against that person, I'm secure in that, my position, my goodness. Jesus is saying that when he enters the equation, there's something so radically different going on. He's saying this, God, I gave them the glory power. I glorified them, right? I gave them glory so that they would be grounded in me, so that they would be secure in their relationship with me, so that they could feed on my grace and the sufficiency of that relationship and my salvation or who I am in their life, that walk by faith, that they would have that ultimately underneath them to support them, to make them feel like they're all that they need to be. They don't need anything else. And so they don't want to be against. They don't even need to be right. What they want is the goodness. What they want is the joy of everything being one, like I want that joy and that goodness. And so when something goes wrong, those people, they don't need this. They go spend their energy somewhere else and they feed on reconciliation and on grace and on forgiveness. And they rejoice when somebody says, you know what, Ken, you're right, I'm sorry. They rejoice in that because they see redemption in that. And they rejoice when they're wrong. Why? Because they're like, oh, just think of what I could have done to scorch a community or to scorch a person if I had continued to go on believing the way I was believing. Thank God that I spared myself from that by finding out that I had misunderstood them. I'm so glad that I had the maturity and that God gave me the wisdom and the security to be able to go have that difficult conversation where I realized I didn't have it all figured out. Right? That's why in Matthew 18, Jesus says, here's the process. It's not, a, it's not a church discipline process. Anyone ever seen someone get kicked out of a church? You know, the pregnant teenager, and we're going to bring her up in front of all of the adults to tell everyone how bad she is. I've seen some crazy things happen, and it's like, why? Because that's Matthew 18. No, no. Matthew 18 is about conflict resolution with believers, if somebody sins against you, you go talk to them. And, and if it's an awkward conversation, you bring somebody else. Why? Because that other person can help keep it from getting explosive or from people misunderstanding each other. And that third person is like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding them. Um, say again what you meant. You know, what did you hear them say? Okay, 
That's what we need to be talking about. Not feelings or emotions, but how we're going to bring this back together because somebody feels injured or there's too much water under the bridge here. But you bring somebody with you. And if that still doesn't work, here's where you go with it. You bring some elders in because maybe there's more maturity or more wisdom that can bring about the idea that, hey, we've got different sides going on here. But at the end of the day, there's only one truth. And we can all say we're sorry for something. First rule of reconciliation or trying to redeem a relationship with somebody or a conflict resolution, here's my first rule. You walk in and say sorry for something. Tell me any situation where you were right where you couldn't have said sorry for something. So even if you're right, hey, listen, you know, I should have come to you earlier. I've been, what you said hurt me, and I've been hanging on to that. I shouldn't have. I should have said something earlier. Or you know what? When that happened and you wounded me, um, I, I went and talked to some other people, and I really shouldn't have. Or you know what? I realized I really judged you, but then I started looking at it and, you know, I've done that same thing to some other people in my life. And you know what? I realized that's pretty hypocritical of me. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And the person who's done 99% wrong and is wanting to be defensive because we get in that trap, right? They'll melt. They'll melt and say, no, no, you didn't. I'm the one who should be sorry. Right? First rule of reconciliation, just come in and say you're sorry. And you have the power to do that when you realize you have the glory of Christ grounding you and enabling you to pursue unity that he prayed for, for me and for you, for his church, for all Christians who would believe because of the testimony of the disciples. Does that make sense? So this morning... As we come and we sing and we celebrate and we give thanks for the city we get to live in, and as we look at all the things that are going on, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your work environment, whether it's with somebody from 20 years ago that you realize it's gotten so much easier to continue to ignore them than to go back and say, you know what? I did the dumbest of all things. I chose a sense of righteous indignation to feed on rather than doing the hard work of pursuing reconciliation in this relationship. Realizing that if there's 1% that you can say you're sorry for in any situation in life, but that out of that, that relationship would get redeemed, that today somehow we would go lay hold of that. So let's pray, and the worship team is going to come up and, and sing us out here. Father, we, uh, we try to do a lot of things in our own power. And I just pray that unity in the church would not be one of those things. That we would realize what our station is in life, what it is to have received grace from your son, what it is to be loved by you. That your Holy Spirit empowers us to do things that, that in a previous life we wouldn't have thought possible. But let us be ministers of reconciliation. Let us be agents of your love and your grace. Let us come together as a church in such a way that other people would look at that and know that Jesus was for real, that there's something powerful going on in that kind of a community. We commit these things to you. We pray for these things in Jesus' name.